So about four months ago, I stood in the Miami airport accidentally ordering a salad in Spanish. I had just returned from a semester studying abroad, speaking mostly Spanish in my day-to-day life, and my brain wasn't sure how to feel about this return to English, at least in public conversations. The well-meaning woman standing in line in front of me, rocking a killer head of bleached hair, loudly tried to explain to me in English how to order calamata olives and feta on my salad. I, having none of it, blankly stared back at her. Her face was about five inches too close to mine. And I still remember my thought in that moment, this gut punch of, where the heck am I and I guess I'm associated with these people? That can be a pretty universal feeling upon returning to the U.S. after time away. (laughs) As some of you already know, I spent the spring of my sophomore year at EMU completing my uh, semester cross-cultural. It was incredible, and I can't speak highly enough of what I've seen of EMU's cross-cultural program. The things I learned and the stories I heard will always stay with me, and I hope influence future action. Several months later, here I am in front of all of you attempting to cram four months into a sermon. Oh, and bonus points if the lectionary readings make it in. <laughs> Led by Byron Peachy and Lisa King, who I think some of you might know, uh, about 20 of us started our semester on the U.S.-Mexico border talking about immigration and staying with the organization Frontera de Cristo. At this point, I would love you to look at your bulletins. I have a little blurb about it, but it depicts um, the train, La Bestia, the beast um, that runs the length of Mexico and is a really important part of the journey that a lot of migrating Central Americans make every year. We saw this on the side of a building and just stopped and stared at it. I think it's really powerful. So from there, we traveled to Guatemala City, where we stayed for the bulk of our time. We lived with host families, and we studied Spanish, Guatemalan history, and culture. After a brief free travel period, we went to Cuba, a country that continues to flummox and charm me. I like to think I know a little bit about all of these countries now, but I know I'm far from it. So many stories left untold, things unseen, Spanish idioms whisked from my brain almost before I could learn them. Being a complete stranger was hard and also really beautiful. Yes, I was a stranger living in relative safety and great privilege, something that a lot of other people in the role of stranger cannot say today. However, being in that position gave me the vantage point to see countries like Guatemala and Cuba and countries like ours in new ways. The conflict and history of the U.S.-Mexico border is fairly well known to this congregation, and I don't think I have anything particularly new or insightful to add to that. My thoughts on Cuba are similarly disjointed, with Cuba often serving as a sort of foil for Guatemala in my mind, a what-if parallel to Guatemala's history. This probably unfairly minimizes Cuba's impact. Um, However, both countries had revolutions within a decade of one another, And in both cases, imperial forces and U.S. interests uh, were overthrown, at least briefly. Um, However, each ended quite differently, with Cuba retaining successful independence, at least from U.S. forces, um, and Guatemala being quite effectively squashed in a matter of years. The injustices that happened in Guatemala are woefully unknown, and so I've chosen to focus on 
Guatemala, the place where I stayed the longest, the place that I still often miss and wonder about, and the site of a number of stories that I wish more people knew. But before I go on, I want to add a little bit of context to the two stories I'm going to be talking about today, that of that reading from Samuel that we just heard, and of Guatemala. Guatemala's history is really, really complicated and could fill a lot of lectures, as it did in my semester. So for the sake of time, I'm going to make the really unfair mistake that a lot of historians have done of starting Guatemala's history with European invasion. Guatemala was originally the home to a diverse group of Mayan people who still live there today. Then, bam! As with so many Latin American countries, Guatemala was inundated with Spanish-speaking conquistadors, bringing with them Christianity, money, the desire for more of it, oh, and a lot of diseases. They also brought a racism that runs like blood through Guatemala's heart even today. There's a strict hierarchy with tall, pale people, you know, the people who look kind of like a lot of us at the top of things, and shorter, darker people who speak one of many Mayan languages, really dismissively referred to as dialects by a lot of people, um, instead of Spanish, at the bottom. As a group of predominantly white kids walking into that history and a culture of preferential treatment towards those of European descent, we were set up for success, for the best kind of treatment. That's something I really hate to admit, but it can't be ignored, and I think I'll always feel at least a little bit guilty about that. But back to our story. See, people in positions of privilege weren't done beating up Guatemala once the Spanish got finished. In 1954, almost exactly the same time as Cuba's revolution, Guatemalans had a brief 10 years, still referred to as the Guatemalan Spring, when they overthrew a brutal dictatorship and elected several democratically elected uh, presidents, most known as Jacobo Arbenz. Both leaders promised um, true democracy for Guatemala. For the first time in hundreds of years, things got a lot better for poor, mainly indigenous Guatemalans. Perhaps most historically significant and disconcerting to the very, very involved United States was the land reform and advocacy for farmers' rights that came out of Arbenz's policies. The United Fruit Company's land, once the site of horribly oppressive sharecropping systems growing crops like bananas, was turned to national land, available for indigenous farmers' use. I imagine all of this a little like the year of Jubilee that we hear about in the Bible. However, those years ended with a crash thanks to the unarguably loud voices of multiple corporations vying for Guatemala's natural resources. Perhaps loudest of those voices was Alan W. Dulles, a board member of the United Fruit Company and, whoops, also the director of the CIA in his spare time. Do you see where this is going? The CIA staged a coup d'etat in Guatemala in the name of ending communism once and for all, and promptly they ended any hopes Guatemala had of freedom from imperial control. I'm still haunted by these stories. And why was Cuba successful in resisting threats to revolution while Guatemala was not? That's one of the pervasive questions that followed me most of the semester. What followed was a civil war that lasted over 30 years. The U.S. was involved in this conflict at every turn, beginning by replacing Guatemala's democratic leadership with a military-run dictatorship. Yet again, Guatemala's ever-present racism reared its head as this dictatorship rooted out communism from the forests and mountains. 
Genocide is the word that almost nobody in Guatemala uses, but genocide it was. Mayan people were specifically targeted and disappeared, never to return to their families. Entire villages were burned to the ground. The most European-looking of the children saved and raised as children of the oppressor. Even today, Guatemala hasn't recovered. There's a pervasive silence that surrounds all of this history. Meanwhile, a mostly corrupt government continues to exist. Still, in the last few years, Guatemalans have taken, have initiated efforts to address their history, to reclaim the power that has been taken from them by people like us again and again. Their stories give me hope. So now I want to shift gears to the Old Testament. The Samuel passage caught my eye in all of its grisly Old Testament details. It's riddled with political corruption, complicated wheelings and dealings, and a lot of pain. It reminds me of what I learned about Guatemala's history. When I first read the passage, I wasn't really sure what was going on. And in case you missed it too, here's the abbreviated version. So King David had a son, Absalom. When the whole Bathsheba thing happened, that's pretty well known, uh, Nathan, the prophet, came to David and said he would rue the day that he sent Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, into war. And as repercussion, Absalom, David's son, would die. While later, Absalom, the ungrateful kid, tried to overthrow his father. David launched his army in defense of his throne, but first made sure that Absalom would still be okay, protected from death. But as the passage tells us in a bit of beautiful but dark foreshadowing, the forest claimed more victims than the sword. Absalom's hair is caught in a tree and he is captured and slaughtered. Nathan's prophecy is fulfilled. David's response to a tragedy that he created is heartbreaking and piercing, and it feels very universally human. In looking at Guatemala's history, dotted with first this European ruler, then that U.S. dictator, I think about how often we are like King David when we think, yeah, but I've just got to knock down this one guy. He's trying to take my throne, or I mean the gift of universal capitalism after all. It's not even going to hurt anybody, I swear. I'm going to be so careful. This has happened a lot in U.S. history, not just with Guatemala. This happened with a ton of Latin American countries, and I'm sure a lot of you have stories Our attempts as powerful people to move countries and other people at our whim never ends well. I'll admit it makes me uncomfortable comparing us to the paternal King David in Guatemala to the child Absalom. But is this so inaccurate? For years, be it through forced religious conversions, misguided missionary attempts, or the straight-up establishment of a dictatorship, the United States has presumptuously taken on the role of parent managing Guatemala and countries like it almost to death. Many of us are sitting here today, like King David, grieving these atrocities and our complicity in them. We wonder how we can roll up our sleeves and right the wrongs. We shake our fists at our ruling King David's running our world. But we have to be honest. It's not just our leaders who are complicit. We are a part of the violence, too. The North Americans loved their cheap bananas, and we still do, am I wrong? Compliments of the United Fruit Company and an oppressed indigenous labor force. But it gets worse, because then, cheap banana in hand, the North American pauses and says, I know, Guatemala needs help. I know nothing about it, but I'm going to do a clothing drive and send all my used clothes. 
What they really need is another pair of stretched-down Nike shorts that they made in my sweatshops. What? This is what Jesus called me to do. That was the sticking part for me. It was easy to see how the evil giant corporation, the United Fruit Company, and Ronald Reagan, who was, no surprise, in like Flynn with all of this, hurt Guatemala. But what about the family members, the connections who I loved, who I know went to Guatemala and maybe slapped on some band-aids that fell off faster than the time it took them to fly back to the U.S.? Did they hurt people? Did they take resources that should never have been allotted to them? Did they use their power unwisely? There's this fascinating, obscure article that was assigned to us during the semester written by a Presbyterian minister, Dennis Smith, titled Do No Harm. This man who's worked in Guatemala for over 30 years describes the myriad ways that, in an effort to help Guatemala, white Christians have created more harm simply because they didn't have the context or connection to the real Guatemala. Influenced by observations and readings like this, I have to ask, Can white North American Christians in the role of fixer ever do anything good in countries like Guatemala? With its history of conquests, of being a tool of subjugation and economic gain, it's hard to unequivocally say yes, at least not until we've stopped for a minute and recognized the power that Guatemala has on its own. Without your presence or my presence or really any outside input, Only then can we begin to ask questions regarding how those of us who are white American Christians can address our power and wealth and actually be helpful. Lest I leave you with the impression that Guatemala is one beleaguered country beyond all repair, I want to emphasize the resilience I saw there. There are people there challenging the status quo, making real political change in the face of corruption, conserving the natural beauty and biodiversity of Guatemala, loving their family and friends. I met women in Zone 7 of the city who have created a little social enterprise empire. They sew things, they teach each other's children, they paint and refurbish their part of the city. They're providing social workers and psychologists and caregivers to those in their community who are hurting the most. Or the teenage girls in the cloud forest stubbornly planting agroforestry plots in the midst of enormously degradative monocropping of vegetables for our prisons and schools here in the U.S. And I can't forget my host family hosting some killer parties for every single relative's birthday, loving each other, telling their stories, and having the grace and goodwill to tell them to me. I'm so glad I met those people. Grief over the civil war that took their sons, the corruption of their leaders, over the natural resources that we and many others have stolen from them, has, I believe, inspired action. Still, we are burdened by questions. How do we do good as faithful Christians, following the mandates of Jesus? How do we help without hurting? There's a common theme in all of this good action. The people living in these countries are leading. Now, this isn't meant to be an anti-interventionalism tirade, and stepping back does not equal passivity. But I truly did see some hopeful examples of partnership through this trip as well. However, those successful examples were all accompanied by leadership from people native to the country. Of course, there are exceptions to my generalization, but in these situations, the North American, mostly white people coming into Guatemala first paused and asked, how do you need help? 
What do you envision for this country that you love and will always love more than I ever can? I'm going to include a film recommendation that I think illustrates my point pretty well. It's a documentary called 500 Years. It covers the history of Guatemala that I skimmed over following the incredible fight that a couple of mostly young indigenous women have led to take back their land and their government. Together, they've exposed their oppressors and are still working to protect their 10,000-year-old heritage. Not once in this film does an authoritative white guy step in front of the camera to share his opinion or talk about how he fixed the problem. It was refreshing and perfectly depicted the power of personal, cultural, and regional connection in reversal of systemic injustices. On the other end of re-empowerment efforts I witnessed, we also had a fascinating meeting with the MCC country rep, whose name I now can't remember. Um, some of you can probably tell me, where he talked about how MCC is working to re-empower without imposition. He describes the set of established goals that the MCC Salvador slash Guatemala has put in place, rooted in Anabaptist church accompaniment, but primarily with the stated goal of building power within communities. The best thing that we can do is create space for people who are oppressed to take back the power that we have consistently taken, both in the government and in the church. We had a conversation with a young activist and leader and his wife, who's actually originally from the U.S. Somebody asked him how he thought white Christians could most sensitively enter a country like Guatemala. He said something important and I think really valuable to keep in mind. To successfully enter a country as a visitor, especially a country with as painful a relationship with the U.S. as Guatemala, one must take on the posture of a student. This means a lot more question asking, more listening instead of talking, sitting at the table but not at its head. Given these stories and the multitude of others like it, I'm beginning to believe that we in North America and Europe need to shut up and sit down for a while. And I say that in the most loving way possible. <laughs> this is the crux of my proposed solution to the messy and complicated reality of our relationship with countries like Guatemala. In addition to this, we need to return the hospitality from which we have benefited and definitely exploited in, for centuries in countries like Guatemala. On a small scale, I think this means becoming a sanctuary church for those fleeing to the U.S., this is an idea that we're starting to discuss in the Immigration Sunday School class that is meeting, and I would love to have any of you join that conversation. Yeah, maybe that idea can feel a little scary, and there is risk. And yet, that risk pales in comparison to the risk that children face every day on their own when they walk through Guatemala, then Mexico, and arrive here in the U.S. It's okay to feel scared, but there is also a time to do the right thing even when it's scary. In this instance, I believe that time is now. Another way that we can exercise our shutting up and listening skills and in the process extend hospitality is to learn another language. I'll admit that's kind of a work in progress for me. With the ability to understand another language comes the opportunity to hear more stories, to ask more questions, in the Do No Harm article I mentioned earlier, the author writes, and I think this is a beautiful quote, language is the house in which we live. The more languages one speaks, the more spaces one has in which to exercise hospitality. 
If hospitality doesn't mean learning a language or more direct political action for you, it can mean opening our houses and extending kindness to the stranger. These are ideas that we're familiar with, but they bear repeating. As a white kid who could do nothing but gratefully receive so much hospitality and kindness during my trip, I wanted nothing more than to return it. Now that I'm back, maybe I can just a little, and I urge all of you to help me do the same. Thank you.